0: That's where we're headed. Luke chapter 3 is where you will find us this morning. (sighs) Exactly how we roll, ladies and gentlemen, right there. Luke chapter 3. Now we are pressing our way just urgently, feverishly, at a record pace. We're still in Luke 3. We're going to go to Luke 3, verse 3. Remember, uh, before the whole holiday season hit, Uh, We were looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, comes in fulfillment of an announcement to a priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, a miraculous birth. uh, And we hear the angel announces to Zechariah, and then Zechariah prays over his son, John the Baptist, that this, this guy, John, is the forerunner, the preparer of the Messiah. So we've been looking at different facets of how he was preparing God's people. And if you remember Luke 3, verse 3... Uh, it says, John went into the, all the country around the Jordan River preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to remind you of these words. To baptize, the Greek word means to dip or to immerse in something. Okay, so it's used of other like, things in the New Testament. So if you take a, a piece of cloth and dip it into a dye... It takes on the characteristics of the dye. If you you take a piece of bread and baptize it into olive oil, it takes the oil. So when we speak about baptism, the idea is that you are immersed or you're dipped in something that you take the characteristics of as a result of being immersed in it. That's why it's such a big deal that in the the New Testament, you'll hear about being baptized in Christ. Well, the idea is you are immersed in Jesus. So you, you begin to take on the characteristics of Jesus. So John comes... Preaching a baptism. Now, the Jews of the day would have understood the concept of baptism. They had all kinds of ceremonial washings and ritual washings. If you were a priest, you had to do certain ceremonial washings to offer priestly service. If you, for some reason, were unclean, for one reason or another, you had washings that you would do to become clean. And there's some debate also about whether or not at this time, non-Jewish converts to Judaism had to be baptized. So the Jews would have understood baptism... But this was a baptism that was different from any of the other ones. This was something that uh, John preaches called a baptism of repentance. And if you remember, repentance, uh, the the Greek word means to change your mind, but that doesn't capture it because we change our minds all the time. The Hebrew root of that is the idea of turning and returning. You're headed this direction, and you turn around and go this way. You're turning from something in order to return to God. That's the idea of repentance. And the thing that was so significant about John's ministry is that this baptism of repentance was given to Israel. In other words, Israel would have naturally thought, hey, we're God's chosen people. We're good. Messiah's coming. We're ready. We're the people who've been waiting for this forever. The shocking thing was that John's ministry of preparation was to them. And his announcement was there is a day of Messianic presence coming that will be glorious for those who are ready and result in judgment for those who are not. So even your ethnic ancestry from Abraham isn't enough. You have to undergo this baptism of repentance. This is our review to remind you of kind of how humbling this would have been for Israel. That is why some in Israel said, no way, we don't need to do this. Others in Israel said, absolutely. And there is a correspondence that Luke paints in the book about if you responded well to John, you will respond well to Jesus. And if you didn't respond well to John, you won't respond well to Jesus. Now, That's all review to set up this. John preaches his own baptism, but he hints at a baptism that was coming. Jump down, if you would, to verse 15. For 400 years, God's prophetic authoritative voice had been silent. John the Baptist comes, and you can tell... That the prophetic sort of voice is back alive now in Israel. And so people flock to this guy from all over. And they naturally ask the question, well, are you the Messiah? Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize or immerse you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, John, in announcing his own baptism, stirs up the messianic expectations of people. They naturally look at him and say, hey, are you the guy? He says, no, no, no. There's one mightier than I coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there's a debate about whether Holy Spirit and fire... Is that the same thing? Like in Acts 2, you have the early church receiving the Spirit in the forms of tongues of fire. But but then you have here, you have fire clearly as an image of judgment. And there's a parallel in Isaiah that seems to refer to judgment. And So so is this people that, that will now be ready for Jesus and receive Him, be baptized with the Holy Spirit in the form of fire? Or... Will these people receive the Holy Spirit if they're open to Jesus, but if they're not open with Jesus, they'll be baptized by fire, which is another way of saying judgment. I don't know which it is, but here is the point. I have my own opinion, by the way. But, but people, are, people disagree over this is one thing or two things, and I just draw your attention to it, so you know. But here's the big point. The big point was right in the middle of John's ministry, he points to a baptism that was coming that was going to be different than his. It's that baptism I want to look at today. I want to take the opportunity because John mentions the baptism inaugurated by Jesus, the baptism we practice. I want to take that and launch into what does baptism mean for us? How, How is it different than what John did? How is it similar? So, That is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Go if you would to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, you all look thrilled at the possibilities that sit out before us. I got to tell you, you know, there are people today in minus like 40 degree weather. And here we are. Here we are. I mean, here we are. You know what I'm saying? I mean, of all the places, we're here. And I I think California is very odd for lots of reasons, right? You have too many people, and you call the freeways the five when there are other fives. And I mean, I just, I just, very odd. But on a day like today, hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. All right, now, we'll clap for California. All right. So, (laughs) so, so what I want you to see is John preached a baptism of repentance and Christian baptism adds to that meaning. It still keeps the idea of repentance, but it adds to that meaning. And my goal this morning is that if you've never been baptized and are a follower of Jesus, that you would decide to be baptized. Now, Matthew 28. Notice, this is Jesus right before he ascends into the heavens. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Disciples are students or apprentices. Go and make more of you, in other words, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, very, very familiar passage, of course. Go, disciples, and make more of you. And how do you do that? You baptize and teach. Notice that you teach people to obey what I've commanded you, not just memorize it and study it, but actually do it. But then you are to baptize them, but now do it in the name of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, there are some people uh, in kind of the church at large who think that this is some sort of magic formula that if you don't say it just right, your baptism doesn't count. I want you to know that we love those people but disagree with them because what it means, when it means to be baptized in the name of somebody, it means for the sake of, someone's name represented their character in the first century. So to be baptized in the name of Jesus means you're doing it for the sake of Jesus or in light of Jesus or under Jesus's authority is the idea. Some people think baptism is magic and it just, it doesn't matter what your heart's like. If you just go into the water or sprinkled or whatever, It works. And that's not what the, the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach it's the heart attitude that matters. And, and that there isn't some magic formula. If, if, you, if you get it wrong, you know, your baptism doesn't count. We don't, we don't think that's what the scriptures teaching. But it does teach that one of the ways Jesus' baptism is different than John's is that John's was addressed to Israel, saying, you children of God need to be prepared for Messiah. Jesus' baptism is addressed to the nations, saying, you now... Turn from every other being you could worship, for everything you could have apart from Christ, and embrace Jesus. And way, the way you do that is through faith and repentance, that, that you now be baptized as a symbol of your turning. So it keeps the idea of repentance, but it adds now that we're doing it in the name of, or for the sake of, or in light of Jesus of Nazareth. Flip over to Acts chapter 2. This was the practice of the early church. Acts chapter 2, Peter, a guy who denies Jesus three times, uh, receives the promised Holy Spirit uh, in Acts chapter 2, and he goes and he announces to the masses gathered at a Jewish festival uh, that the Messiah that they had been expecting, they actually had crucified, but they'd seen risen from the dead. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sermon, and it ends with this pretty epic sentence, verse 36 of Acts 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Just in case you were unclear about this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, now notice, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this weaves the threads together. So, what should we do? Repent. That's a John the Baptist word. I was going this way, now I'm going this way. Repent and be baptized. So you keep the meaning of John's baptism, but you now add to it, in the name of Jesus... And you will receive the gift of the Spirit, right? This is exactly what John had promised. That there is one who's coming after me who will baptize, immerse you in the Holy Spirit. We believe that happens when you place your faith and trust in Christ. So the idea now is that all of these threads that were present in John's ministry kind of come to fruition in the early church. Repent and be baptized, that's what John's repentance was. But now do it in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. This is what John had said. So, what we believe is this on the one hand, there are people who believe that baptism is magic. We don't believe it saves you, we don't believe it's magic. But on the other hand, many of us, because of these people, go to the opposite extreme, and we think it's just this nice, optional sort of add on. And it's not that either. Because when you read in the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles are commanding people all the time, listen, if you believe and you confess this Jesus, be baptized. And it was an, there was an urgency to it that's missing in the American church. There was an intensity to it that's missing in the uh, American church. It's not magic and it doesn't save us, but yet... It's not just kind of this optional thing either. There's some deep, deep stuff going on that Paul explores in his writings. Go, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. Are you guys following with me so far? All right, so 10 of us are all in thrilled. It's more than last time. Romans chapter 6. Now, if you're new to the Bible, This next text is pretty thick, and I'm going to read it, and then I'll try to explain it a little bit. Uh, A guy named Paul is a missionary in the first century, and he's writing to a church that's made up of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, and there was a lot of confusion about how Jewish and non-Jewish Christians should relate to each other because the Jewish Christians were all going, listen, the Messiah was Jewish, so... You kind of got to be Jewish to get into this whole thing. And the, and the non-Jewish folks are going, well, we're in for that except for the circumcision part. I'm not, we're not huge fans of that, especially the adult men weren't, you know. Uh, so, so Paul writes this letter and, and he's kind of building, he's, he's, he's eradicating any basis for self-righteousness by either group. And he very famously sort of builds to this statement in Romans 3. He says, you know, everyone has sinned. This is so good. If you're going to miss, this is so good. <laughs> I'm sorry. He builds to this very famous statement. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by, the grace, uh, by, by faith in the Lord Jesus by his grace. That's the idea. And so he then, from chapter 3 kind of into 4 and 5, he's talking about uh, how we are justified by faith. We are made right with God, not in virtue of our keeping of the law, but in virtue of our faith in this Jesus. Which raises then the very interesting question that Paul turns to address. Hey, if God, for hello ladies. If God, a lot of traffic down the center row, I like it. I like it. I bet there will be less now. <laughs> if God loves forgiving, and what causes him to forgive is sin, then maybe we should sin more because it will make him forgive more, and he loves forgiving. Right? And and even my little my ten-year-old my has asked this question. So if Jesus is going to forgive me for everything I've ever done, <sighs> So why can't I go do all this stuff, right? And don't, and don't pretend like you haven't wondered this, right? I, I, yesterday, I was wondering, or oh, after Ohio State lost, I was wondering about this. Now, so Paul begins to address this question, but notice how he does it. He does it by appealing to their baptism. What should we say then? Now, he's anticipating their question. He says, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace can increase, For if we have been united with Him in death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And again, this is a whole mouthful, but here's what it's saying. Okay? The symbolism of baptism, somebody going under the water and then coming up out of the water, that is a picture of one of the most profound spiritual truths taught in the Bible. That those who follow Jesus are united with Jesus. What that means is they receive by grace what He is by nature. In other words, the things that were true of Him become true of us. So He was holy, we're declared holy. He was put to death. The image of baptism is when you go under the water, your old self, the self in rebellion against God, the self that keeps the self at the center of human life, the self that is full of pride or lust or greed, the self that is faithless, the self that is mistaken prone, the self that is at failures, the self that has baggage, that whole self has been crucified with Jesus and put to death on His cross, and is dead and buried, and has no power except now what we give it. Okay, so when you're under there, the idea is you have, you've you been united in some mysterious way with Jesus in His death. That old self is put to death. And when you come out of the water, it's a resurrection. You join Jesus in His resurrection. See, Jesus' resurrection is a glimpse into your future. The Bible teaches what happened to Jesus in His resurrection is going to happen to those in Him. So that the Scriptures say, if anyone is in Christ, literally they are a new creation. So think about what this means. To a group of people that say, hey, shall we keep on sinning then because God loves giving grace? He says, No, no, because that's not who you are. You have been buried. You have died to all of that stuff. And now a new self made increasingly in the image of Jesus of Nazareth has been birthed in its place. So why sin? Because that's not who you are. Sin is actually living in an old identity that is no longer true of you. But you will say, It doesn't feel like my old self is dead. (laughs) It doesn't feel like my sin nature has been put to death. In fact, it feels more alive than the resurrected nature. Can I get an amen from anybody who's honest? Right? This is why God is a God of props. I don't mean props like propellers. I mean props like stage props, physical props. God loves giving physical reminders of spiritual truth. Why? Because we don't believe him. We're forgetful people. We're people that love to remember what we're supposed to forget and to forget what we're supposed to remember. And so, all throughout the scriptures, God gives physical signs of His promises, of His covenants. So, baptism is the clearest demonstration that you are in Christ. And all that that means an old self died. And a new self is resurrected. One teacher I love put it, it's your tombstone to your old self and the birth certificate of the new self. And that there will be times in the future when you doubt that all of that was real. Paul just simply says, Remember your baptism. What you lived there captures exactly the work of Jesus in you. Now, I think that I think that falls under the phrase good news. So, so God is a God of props. I want to explore this because we don't believe it. We don't believe he's this good. We don't believe grace is this free. We just don't believe it. But God does this all throughout the scripture. So I want to give you a couple of examples. Genesis 9. This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature. This was after the flood. A covenant with generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. So the rainbow then is the physical sign of the promise or covenant that God would never flood the earth like he did in the days of Noah, right? The next sign of the covenant is a bit more intimate. Genesis 17 This is my covenant with you and your descendants to Abraham. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So every, to remind them of their descendancy from Abraham, their ethnic identity as God's people, this is what they were to do. It was a physical reminder of who they were. God also gave feasts And festival. So for instance, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus 13. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son. So the whole feast was designed to remember. I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. We came out... Without much preparation, so we had to eat bread that didn't have time to rise, so we ate unleavened bread. Now, for the rest of your existence, celebrate this festival, and as you do so, remember what I did for you. See, God, God has done this right from the beginning of time, because we are forgetful people. Another one, Deuteronomy 6, these commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit, when you walk along the road, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. There are some Orthodox Jews today who literally have symbols. Or little bound like copies of the Shema that are attached to their robes or to their door frames or to their foreheads. I mean, this was, you were to live reminding yourself constantly of who you now were. Or famously in Joshua chapter 4, the people of God are coming into the promised land. The Jordan River sits between them and the land. God stops the Jordan when they put their foot in it so they can walk across. And then God says... Now, each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israelites and build like this pile of stones to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So this is what I mean when I say God is a God of props. Hey, you forget who you are all the time. So God gives physical reminders. And again, there are two ways to look at these physical reminders. One way is to say, well, they're mandatory, and if you don't do them, you're toast. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scripture doesn't teach it. They're not magic. But on the other hand, we go to the some of us go to the opposite extreme and we say, well, then they're totally optional and it doesn't matter. To which we say, Well, no, that's not right either. God takes the signs of his covenants very seriously. In Exodus 4, there's this really interesting passage where Moses doesn't circumcise his son and God is about ready to put him to death because of that. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, there, Paul is teaching that there, there's a church that's abusing communion to the point where Paul says this literally, some of you are getting sick and falling asleep, which was a, a biblical way of saying you were dying because of this. So they're not magic. And they're not just sort of these optional addendums. Somewhere in the middle is is the recognition that they're urgent and they're important and they matter. They are pictures and signs of covenants that are so fundamental to our identity because literally we don't believe it. We don't believe this. And so one of the biblical answers to why do God's people still sin is that they just simply forget who they are. We don't really trust it. And so baptism becomes the sign par excellence of the old, del- the old self's death and the new self's resurrection. And we say, brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you, we implore you to be baptized. Why? Number one, it is a public declaration of allegiance. This is not just a private faith between you and Jesus somewhere. It, when people were baptized in the first century, it was an act of civil disobedience, because Rome was the big power in the world at this time. Rome was totally cool if you worship Jesus as long as you worship Caesar too. They didn't have a problem worshiping with Christians worshiping Jesus. They had a problem with worshiping Jesus alone. And see, baptism is the sign. See, baptism is two things. It's the repudiation of this so that I can have this. It's the death of all that I could have over here calling my own shots and the embracing of what life looks like now under the governorship of Jesus. But the second reason why we encourage people to do it out of obedience is because it is a sign and it is a seal of what's now true of Jesus. You, the reason people celebrate anniversaries when they're married, right, is because they need reminding. Yeah, we loved each other. <laughs> remember how young we were? Remember, remember when we refused premarital counseling because we thought we'd never have any problems? Boy, we, we dumb. <laughs> right? I mean, there, there's a sense in which God has built this into the fabric of what it means to be human, reminding again and again and again and again. And so we simply urge you, if you have no guilt, no shame, I mean, again, if you, if, you, if you die heading home and you're unbaptized, will God look at you and say, nope, it's a technicality, sorry. I know you trusted me, but I'm sorry. No, that's not what God's like. But at the same time, most of us don't live with any urgency about stuff like this. And I want to recapture some of the urgency. So what I want to do, Is um, like I said, we're gonna do baptism next week, and I really wanna invite you to do that to go to the thing in the chapel right after. But as I was preparing this, one of the things that ancient baptismal liturgies did is they would not just invite you to embrace Jesus, but they would have you repudiate or renounce all other allegiances. In the American church, we do a great job of celebrating the turning to Jesus but we don't really do much with the repudiating everything else because we're kind of a buffet sort of people, right? I like, I like Jesus and I like a whole bunch of other th- stuff too. I like Jesus in measured doses. You know, I like Jesus as long as he's blessing my agenda, whatever. And so I thought, I'm assuming there, there are a few of us in here that have been baptized. I thought, well, what's the call for those of us? The, the call for those of us is to live our baptism, to live who you already are, but I thought maybe we could get some renouncing going on this morning. So I want to do, I want to do a public reading, kind of go a little old school. I, I, I wrote some stuff that I'm, I want to read, and I want to have you respond, kind of as a church. And um, let me give a couple of disclaimers. I wrote this purposefully to feel like, oh my goodness, we can never measure up to this. But it's all still true. And secondly, if if you're here and you're kind of new to this or you're not comfortable, like in a church setting, I mean, there's no pressure. You don't have to, you can mumble or you can just sit and watch. But in a moment, I'm going to invite us to stand and and we're going to repudiate some stuff. We're going to renounce some stuff. I couldn't think of a better way to kind of enter into a new year than to say not only, because it's not like repentance happens one time. It's a way of life. We want to turn our back in anything not of Jesus we want to grab hold again of him. So stand with me if you would. So when it says reader, that's me. When it says church, that's you. Okay, just to be clear. And then, and then the last thing says all, and that would be all of us. I just, you know, I felt like, because we, we don't do a lot of responsive readings in the American church, so I just thought I'd warm you up. All right, here we go. To renounce means to say something especially in a formal or official way that you will no longer have or accept something. So we're going to do a bit of renouncing. I like this. To say in a formal or definitive way that you will refuse to follow, obey, or support something or someone any longer. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to use we language because we're in a corporate setting, but make this an I. And, and, and if there are parts of this that are hard for you to read... Because you can feel the hypocrisy (laughs) of the distance between your heart and how you live and what you're saying, may I gently suggest, as followers of Jesus, then that becomes the place of turning for us. By the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we who have been called to be a part of the kingdom of God pledge our lives wholly and completely to our Lord Jesus Christ. We renounce Satan, our adversary. And all that belongs to the kingdom of darkness. We pledge to love and worship the only true and living God. And to worship Him alone. We renounce the false gods of our world. The gods of money, sex, self, and power. We pledge to gain all of our life and all of our worth and all of our security from Jesus Christ alone. We renounce all idolatrous ways of getting life, worth, and security apart from Christ. We pledge to practice Christ like love towards all people at all times, in all circumstances, including those who might regard themselves as our enemies. We renounce all hatred, all racism, all sexism, all violence, all bigotry, all bitterness and all unforgiveness. We pledge to live as ambassadors of reconciliation, announcing and embodying the good news that God is reconciling the world to Himself and to each other through Christ. We renounce the sinful walls that separate people from God and divide people along ethnic, national, political, or generational lines. We pledge to be people of hope, committed to waiting and working toward the day of Jesus' return, we renounce all fear, all worry, and all anxiety about the future. All of us. By the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we who have been called to be a part of the Kingdom of God, Pledge our lives wholly and completely to our Lord Jesus Christ. Make it so. Make it so. May that become true of us. And if there were any part that you were reading, if there was any part that you went, oh, all worry, all anxiety, all hatred, all unforgiveness, perhaps that ping was just a bit of the Holy Spirit inviting you to turn and to return. And so we are going to worship. But brothers and sisters, I want to pray that God would seal these words in our hearts and that we would come back to this way of living again and again and again. Father, we are people who walk in grace and truth. The truth is Lord, we don't live this way fully and completely. The grace is that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and yet You invite us more and more to reflect the image of Jesus. And so Father, we pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit to grow in our midst and in our lives so that we as Your people might look ever more like Jesus. And that these religious ideas would work their way with great power into the depths of our hearts so that we actually dare to believe we are new. And that the old identities, and that the old sins, and that the old habits, and the old mistakes, and the old failures, that those aren't the defining things about us anymore. Lord, dare we believe that actually be true? Dare we believe that we are sons and daughters? Dare we believe that you see us as holy? Dare we believe that sin is no longer the defining mark of how you see us? And so, Father, we just pray for your grace and we pray for your truth to flood this space as now we sing and give voice to what's true. Amen.